MDN TV, the podcast. Be abreast with now. Never miss a thing with MDN TV, the podcast. We love to keep you in the present with diverse goodies from secular and non secular subjects of global interest. Join us. Grab more from these series. Listen to our podcasts. The undeniable is sundown. The day has just begun. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Yes. <laughs> this is MDN Shows Running With The Times, only on MDN TV, the podcast. And I am Major Daughter. MDN Shows has pitched his tent away from traditional grounds just to reach you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to all our listeners and viewers around the world. Meet us in the comments. We are live there with a show specially packaged for you my guest survived an attempted murder he was nearly beaten to death in south africa that will be 2011 in gramstown look not only that he also lost life savings in a failed business but he will later on turn all that around and build himself from the ground up not only that that's why i'm saying this is specially packaged for you it's it's power packed he has lost 100 pounds and has been able to keep that weight off after many failed attempts. Do you know someone who can benefit from this conversation? Do you know someone who can take a leaf and go practice and maybe attain the same kind of results in this conversation? Well, bring them on. Tell them to jump in. Share this podcast. Share this program. Share this broadcast right now. My guest joins me momentarily. MDN TV, the podcast. Be abreast with now. Never miss a thing with MDN TV, the podcast. We love to keep you in the present with diverse goodies from secular and non secular subjects of global interest. Join us. Grab more from these series. Listen to our podcasts. The undeniable, the undeniable choice. choice indeed for today is Jonathan McLennan. Look. A couple of weeks ago, we heard of the murder of a German tourist that took place near Kruger National Park. What are we saying about the kind of crime and violence that we have been experiencing in South Africa? And I think the million dollar question is, are the authorities really winning the battle against crime and violence? Is there, is there, is there zero tolerance really on crimes and violence? Jonathan, my guest, is one of those who have suffered in the hands of the Criminals, the hands of violence, the hands of the violent in the country. 
We saw that uh, bring a spotlight on crime in the country. But as you know, after some time, such things died down and nothing is said again. And we keep experiencing the same kind of, are we asking the, the right questions? Are we addressing these issues of crime and violence the right way. What is it that we are not doing right? Well, Jonathan McLennan joins me now. Jonathan, tell us what happened to you when you were in South Africa. 2020, uh, 2011, what happened? Jonathan, the mic swings to you. Jonathan? Yeah, and, and it's absolutely a pleasure to, to be here. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting is all of these stories are connected to each other. And maybe I also want to say I'm actually grateful for the experience that I went through in South Africa, even though I wouldn't choose to go through it again, because it, it's the reason why I'm doing what I am today. Mm. So, um, you know, my wife and I, are, I'm from Canada. My wife is from Australia. And we've done quite a bit of traveling over the years. And when we were living in Mexico, we met someone from South Africa and uh, from Grahamstown, actually. And so we were, we were invited to come down to South Africa and help out with a project that his parents were running. It was, a, um, it was basically teaching, an, uh, it was teaching young people how to develop life skills to then get placement into internships, improving their prospects of employment. Yes. And uh, it was when we were out wor- working on um, Thomas Bain's Nature Reserve, actually, and this goes back, this is about 11 years ago that this, this took place. And um, it, only about two weeks after we'd arrived in South Africa, and uh, one night I was just walking back to the instructor's cabin. And, um, you know, when I, when I got there, it's, it's nighttime, I'm by myself, I'm just wearing flip-flops and, and, and sweatpants and, and a t-shirt. I'm in a really relaxed mood. My, my wife and students and the other instructor, they're all in the, in the other building there enjoying dinner. And the door was slightly ajar and it probably should have, you know, and, and of course in hindsight we say, you know, it should have, you know, tweaked something in my brain that something was off, but you know, I'm, we're out in what feels like the middle of nowhere on a nature reserve. So I'm not thinking that anything is off, <clears throat> but when I opened the door, <laughs> there's three men inside this cabin and they're drinking our rooibos tea and eating rusks. Wow. And Still, you know, my, the alarm bells didn't quite go off in my brain uh, because I looked at one of the faces and I was like, I recognize you. And uh, one of the men was um, a ranger uh, at the nature reserve. And I've probably seen his face many times um, just when driving in and out of the reserve. And so I thought, is there something wrong with the cabin? Were you here, you know, fixing something? But this is, you know, after hours. And again, <laughs> but what I didn't see was there was a there was a fourth guy, and he was outside the cabin. And uh, uh, then, just kind of out of nowhere, I get smashed across the head with with a rock. And now, now I'm kind of stunned and trying to figure out, like, like what what is going on? <laughs> this, you know, this doesn't feel this doesn't feel right. And the other three, they, they jumped up, and and the guy grabbed me again. And uh, I think the part of it that sticks out most in my mind was um, I was wearing like a collared golf shirt. You know, it has like three buttons and a collar at the top. And I remember him grabbing like the scruff of my shirt and then smiling at me and then saying, shh, as he swings this rock at my head mm-hmm. and sm- smashes me across the head with it again. And uh, 
I think that was, that was the, probably the moment that was like maybe the most disturbing in a sense. It was, it was looking into the eyes of somebody who I didn't know them. They didn't know me, but they wanted to cause me serious harm. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So now, now I'm stunned and I, I, fall to the ground I and mean, hit across head a few times with the rock. Um, I wasn't unconscious, thankfully. And the other, they, they jump in and, and really they just started, uh, like stomping and kicking and, and beating on me. And, um, I remember kind of thinking while this is happening is, you know, uh, well, part of my brain is screaming like for help, but I remember thinking like, I don't want to die tonight. <laughs> like yes. that, you know, and I was just thinking about like seeing my wife again, my brother and my mom and dad again, just wanting to see my family again. And, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how it happened in a sense. I mean, I, I, I believe in God, but I, I found the strength to fight my way to, to my feet. And, um, I, I didn't stick around to fight with them. I, I managed to break free from their, their grasp and kind of stumbled over toward the building where everybody else was. And for some reason they didn't chase me. And I don't know why. Um, because they could have, I wasn't exactly moving quickly. I was, my, you know, blood was pouring down my face and I was stumbling and stunned and disoriented and all the rest of it. Um, but they kind of just left me in that moment. Um, and so I, I get into the building and, uh, you know, I've been attacked and now chaos kind of ensues because we don't know how many guys are actually out there yes. either. It's nighttime. I mean, there could, you know, there could be two, there could be 10. We, d- we didn't really know. And so, you know, it was interesting sort of seeing how everybody responded to that situation. Of course, I'm stunned. I'm concussed. I'm, you know, I got blood dripping down my face. Like I, you know, I'm still trying to sort of process like what is even going on and where am I and what, what's happened. Um, but, uh, yeah, we ended up being trapped in that building for about 45 minutes before the police actually arrived. And it was really, I think, kind of maybe a stroke of luck that the police even arrived um, because there wasn't great cell signal out there either at that time. And, but one of the students had their cell phone and managed to call and it just so happened that a more senior police officer was walking by a desk when a phone rang and he decided to answer the phone. And so they, they, they sent some officers. Um, but when they, when they got there, the officers were like, okay, nobody died. So we can probably leave now. They're, I'm sure they're gone. Wow. And wow. we, you know, we were, we were kind of, we were kind of stunned by this. My, my wife in particular, she was, she was, my wife is incredibly brave in all of this. You know, she was like, you are not leaving until we leave. We, none of us are staying here tonight. They're still there. They're literally out in the bushes. We just don't know where they are right now. But if you leave, they're coming back. And, um, and so anyways, they, they did, they did sort of stay around, but, um, I recall they, they uh, found a knife that the attackers had had. Thankfully, they didn't manage to stab me either for some, you know, again, I think about all these things, like how did, how did they not stab me? Um, I don't know. Um, but one of the police officers just picked it up with his bare hand, which, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've not been a police officer, but I know that that contaminates evidence. <laughs> um, and so it was really like, it was kind of a frustrating experience. Um, all in all. So I ended up um, getting taken to the hospital and, and, and checked out and, um, you know, bruised ribs, concussion, um, nothing was fractured, broken, thankfully. But it turns out these guys had actually murdered a, a guy the night before. Um, oh. And there, there's so, so many things in hindsight from this story that we look back and go, like, you know, it, I think it's natural. We want to go like, well, if only I knew, you know, it was, it happened on a Monday night. 
And, and that Monday morning, when we came back to the nature reserve after a weekend away, you know, our, our cabin was in a bit of chaos and sort of disarray. And so we thought, oh, we'll just need to speak to the weekend facilitator and ask him to tidy up after, you know, after he stayed out here for the weekend. Well, probably what had actually happened was they'd ransacked the place earlier yes. and they came yes. back. And that day there'd been helicopters flying over the reserve. And I think they were looking to try to find these guys because they'd killed the farmer the night before. And, uh, but nobody, nobody thought to tell us, Hey, there's some dangerous murderers on the loose that we're trying to locate (laughs) that we don't know where they are, you know? And so it was just, of course it's easy to say all this in hindsight, you know, but it's just recognizing that like there were so many things that maybe they didn't mean anything to us in the moment, but had we connected the dots, we might've realized that we were going to a bad situation. So that's, um, I guess that's a fairly large nutshell kind of what happened to me. Um, but I think that experience became the catalyst for everything I struggled with and went through in the following years. Wow. 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 It's, it's just something else. Look, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry that this happened. And you say something, you said you recognized one of the guys as one of the rangers Look, could this be an inside job? I'll tell you why. Just um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, or days, the, there has been a uh, murder of a German tourist killed near the Kruger National Park, just mm. like that, in an attempted hijacking. And uh, uh, mm. this continues to happen. Could it be that some of these incidences... Uh, are inside jobs. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I wondered about that. So, because I, I'm white, um, and they would have seen, like, every day that we drove in, like, some of our instructors were black as well, but there's these two white people driving in, and I think there's perhaps just some assumptions made about us because we're white, like, that we probably have money, and that we're probably, you know, they, like, they didn't know who I was. They just yes. knew, they, they just, you know, and so... I th- the way that I think about it is um, because I, I think, well, why didn't they just, you know, maybe like shoot me or stab me? Why, why did they choose to try to basically kick and stomp and beat me to death? Mm. And uh, so my, my thinking on this is because um, they, they didn't know me. They didn't know Jonathan. They didn't know who I was, but I say I was a, a representation of something they felt had been a part of historically oppressing them. And so mm. it's like, there's a, there's like a desire to take. So in this instance, when we look, look at it through the lens of psychology, it's like there's a desire to take back something they feel was taken from them. And there's wow. like an exchange of power that takes place here. And so like a desire to make me suffer and a desire to make me, you know, feel things and to, to drag it out. And, and actually probably the desire to drag it out was the reason that I survived really. Um, but to, to extend the suffering and to, for them to experience sort of that feeling of power over me in, in that uh, incident. And so that's kind of how I, I come to understand it when I look back on the incident. Hmm. How long ago was this? And did you open any case? What is even surprising mm-hmm. and more, it, it, it's, it's, it's scary. It's one of the scariest things I've ever heard. You say a policeman said to you, a senior police 
officer says to you, nobody died, so you can move on. Really? Just like that. It's a tragedy. You've ended up in hospital. I mean, you recognized one of the guys as a ranger there. So they did manage to catch, they managed to catch three out of the four people. Um, And so, and I will say like, uh, in one sense, I understand um, some of the police were very, very professional and and very helpful and others. uh, My, and this happened, this was 11 years ago. So this is 2011 at the time of recording this 11 years ago. Um, And, and so my inclination is that some of the maybe lower level police officers are, are just more concerned about, it's a very, very dangerous job. Let's, let's, we can acknowledge that. It takes yes. extreme courage to be a police officer in a violent country where you are a target. And so I, I have great respect for anybody who's willing to put on that uniform and try to restore, you know, peace and safety to some degree. I understand that the danger level of that job can make some people fearful. And, and I think maybe that night they're, they're thinking, here we are, there's only two of us, you know, they have guns, but um, they didn't know how many attackers are out there because as you know, they can sometimes travel in packs of, 10 or 15 even. And, uh, so they just wanted themselves to kind of get out of there too. But, uh, you know, so that, that kind of, that kind of surprised us, I guess, because, you know, in Canada, our police have problems too, but we, yes, we come to trust in a sense. We expect that they're there to, to protect us. And that's, that's what we we ask for, you know? So it's, it, it, like it, it surprised us a bit, but again, I think because my wife was so courageous in terms of like, because she herself wasn't attacked, but she has the trauma of watching me like stagger through a door, you know, blood covering my face, my, you know, covered in, in, in boot prints and, and whatnot, like just, and saying I've been attacked and then me sort of collapsing and just sitting down and leaning against the wall, not sure what's even happening. And so she has the trauma of seeing that and wondering like, you know, what's, what's happening with my husband. I mean, I could have had a, you know, a brain injury or a brain bleed that led me to, to dying there again. Um, and so, uh, it, it was, they, they ended up catching three of them and we, we went back to Australia for a couple of months to kind of psychologically decompress, but we actually yes. stayed in South Africa for four more months because a part of us said, we don't want to let them win. You know, we're, we're stubborn, I guess yes. we, we, we want them spirit. to, <laughs> Yeah, we don't we don't yes. want them to intimidate, you know. But <clears throat> there were more incidences that took place, and, and and from what I understand, sort of Grahamstown and the surrounding townships at that time were experiencing quite a spike in in crime and violent crime. Um, the brother of one of our instructors was uh, a, a black man was was locked in a, a building and the building set on fire, and he, he unfortunately died. Um, there were there were other sort of like violent robberies. The house that we were living in was broken into um, 13 times in a four month span, you know, and we had the private security buttons and things like that. But, you know, after a while it starts to feel like we were living in a prison under siege because it's like, is any, like, will anybody just leave us alone and let us be. And so, because of course we come from, you know, Canada and Australia where th- there are some of these problems, but they're, they're not nearly at the same scale. So for us, it's just started to wear, wear us down psychologically, mentally, emotionally. It just becomes exhausting, not sleeping at night, like wondering, is someone going to try to break in again tonight? Where are my weapons? That kind of thing. Always being at the ready. And so, um, we, we eventually got to a place where we realized we have to leave before we have like some form of nervous breakdown or something, because I was also starting to get very angry about all the things that were happening. Um, 
I mean, I'd been traumatized and really the trauma was unresolved at that yes, point. Yes. Uh, and so I was starting to get angry. Like, why are people, why are people always like trying to rob us and, and, you know, violently attacking us or people that we know and, and so on. And I recognized that like I was, I was starting to think about trying to take some kind of violent retribution and anybody who knows me knows I'm not a violent person. I'm a, I'm a hugger. I hug most yes. people that I meet. Yes. As I started having thoughts around this and, and not just thoughts about it, but I was starting to make plans like for what I could, because I'm also ex military and I was starting to make plans for what I could do when someone broke into her house and how I could potentially trap them and things. The, the, the logical part of my brain was like, what, the, what are you doing? This is not you. This is not who you are. And, and that, you know, I recognized like something is really wrong. Like that the trauma was causing me to, to really like actually want to do something violent. And I, I look back again and I understand like what was happening is like, again, it's sort of that psychological power balance. Something had been taken from me. Um, yes. my power had been taken away from me. And so I was searching for a way to kind of take back what had taken from me. And it's almost like, you know, the story of like the person who become, who was abused becomes an abuser. And I realized I didn't want that to, to be my story. I didn't, you know, that we have that expression, um, hurt people, hurt people. In other words, yeah. those who are, those who have been hurt become those who, who cause hurt. Yes. And I didn't want, I didn't want to become that person. And so we, we made the decision to leave and to go back to, uh, Australia for a few months and just try to kind of decompress with everything that happened. Did you feel like you were targeted because of your color? Because you say that um, it felt like they were out on some revenge of some sort. Mm -hmm. And they felt like there's something that had been taken away from them and it's time to pay back. I'll tell you why I'm raising this. Mm -hmm. There are voices that rise, right? But sometimes we may not be uh, like really paying attention to what they are saying. What are your thoughts mm. on that? And uh, in, in this particular case, we have um, Afri Forum that has been saying for quite some time now that there, are, there had been and there are murders that are taking place on, um, uh, there, are, there are farm murders which are, probably and allegedly uh, spewed by hatred and caused by hatred. Mm. They've been saying that for a while now. And maybe uh, the, n nobody's really paying attention to what they are saying because they are obviously considered as a racist um, organization. What will be your mm. thoughts based on your experience that day? Look, we can't, we can't change what transpired, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. we, we can listen. And these are some of the conversations that are not the easiest to have, but we need to right. have them. But also yeah. listen to both sides of the story. Somebody said mm. white people are the only race that anyone can, um, uh, discriminate or say anything they like against them or about them, and there'll be no consequences. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a really interesting thought. Um, I I do suspect that race was a part of it. Um, I I don't resent that fact. 
which might sound interesting because I've come to the place where I, I never saw those men again. Um, I was asked to come back with a court case. Um, but at that time I really like mentally and emotionally just didn't feel like I could come back and, and cause they caught three out of the four, uh, attackers. I don't know what ever happened to the fourth one, but, um, I remember that the police officer, um, he, he said to me, the one guy's eyes were just pure evil when he looked into them, you know, mm. just, just pure evil. And so, yeah, I just felt like mentally and emotionally, I couldn't go back and, and, and face up to them again at that time. But, uh, there came a, I guess to answer your question. So I do believe that race, um, motivated the attack yes. uh, or at least played a role in the attack. Um, but I, I came to the place about eight months after the attack where I decided that I was, I was exhausted with being angry and filled with rage. So mm. it's, because I didn't want to act on these emotions that I was feeling, but they felt overwhelmingly powerful. And, and this is, I think hard for someone who's maybe not been through trauma. It might be hard to understand, but I, I'm, you know, many people I've met in South Africa have had a traumatic experience regardless of their skin color, but just by the nature of, of the unfortunate nature of the country and the struggles that it's enduring. And so I, I made the decision that I wanted to forgive these men. And the, the way that I explain this is it wasn't just like I decided to forgive them and everything was good. But I realized, okay, forgiveness is a process, at least for me and in this experience. And so every time I would think about the incident, because one of the things our brain does is it kind of replays the incident over and over again. And, you know, the brain would go, if I knew this, I would have done this. If I knew this, I would have done that. And so on, trying to replay and change the experience and what had happened. And every time my brain would start to replay the experience, and of course people, I would meet people and they would maybe hear about it and they, they would want to ask me about it. And at that time I wasn't again in a good place to speak about it because I hadn't done the work that I've since then done. So every time that I started to think about it and, and I could feel like the anger sort of coming up in me, um, I had to consciously try to cultivate a sense of compassion. So I had to ask myself the question, well, what happened to these men? Yes. Now this isn't to excuse their behavior or their actions, but as to say what happened to them in their life that led them to the place where this is what they're doing. Hmm. And so by, by trying to cultivate a sense of compassion for them. And again, I say compassion is not a call it get out of jail free card. That's not what it's intended to be, but it helps us to understand why people do the things that they do. Yes. Um, so we can find like, what is, what is the real problem here? Because we could even say that the violent attack is really a symptom of something deeper. Well, what is yes, that? Yes. And, you know, and so, so uh, it took probably a number of months for me to actually get to the place where I felt like I was free. Cause also forgiveness was about setting myself free. So for as long as I would think about that experience and feel anger and a desire for vengeance, I was handing my power back to them, whether they knew it or not. Hmm. When I came to the place of forgiveness, they no longer held power over me because I would, you know, it's the person who can make you angry is the person who can control you. And so forgiving them meant that I was taking back my control, my power. And that was ultimately what, what kind of set me free from um, the most, I guess, difficult parts of that trauma. And I think the other question you were kind of asking is, is as it seems like uh, white people are the only people that can be discriminated against without retribution. Yes. And there are times where it does feel a bit like that, but what's, what's really fascinated me is to hear uh, people of color stepping up and saying like, it isn't right to treat white people like this. 
Yes. And, to, you know, to, to make statements about all people are this or all white people are that, because if we change white to any other, any other um, skin color or ethnicity, because white isn't just a, like white isn't a race, really. There's just in the same way there's, you know, maybe uh, 10 or 11 different major ethnic groups in the black community in South Africa. There's a quite a variety. Like you go from Eastern Europe to <laughs> Australia, there's, yes. you know, the different, so we're not just like one people, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's people of color who are actually speaking up and saying, like, Hey, bad human behavior is bad human behavior. Yeah. Whether, whether they're, they're their skin color should not be the reason why um, we allow or permit like unjust or unkind or racist treatment. And so it is possible for people who are white to experience racism as well. Now I'm not, I'm not naive to history when I make that, that statement, but um, I, I think somehow to pretend that it's only people with white skin who have done terrible things in this world is very, very naive. It's certainly, <laughs> It's certainly not the truth. And so yes. I, I would, I almost wish we could step back from the discussion about skin color and behavior and just look at behavior and say, when we, when we exert power over another human being, when we mistreat another human being, this is, this is bad human behavior. And I think it was Martin Luther King who said, um, you know, judge people by the content of their color, sorry, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Yes. And that's what I try to remind myself of. Hmm. Whew, this 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 is something else. And look, you 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 stay away from the court case. You don't come for the court case for whatever reasons you have given. What happens to the case? Was justice ever served? And how, how did the matter end, Jonathan? Yeah, I you know I don't I don't know what became the end of those men. Uh, because so they were the same man had murdered a guy the night before. And so like, I was only one part of the case. Um, they were also oh, they, yes. like, so they they'd murdered a white farmer the night before and they the police officer shouldn't have told us this. Um, but they, they said they smashed his head in like a pumpkin. And so that was likely going to be my fate had it been knocked unconscious because they, they were in you know, the first, the first blows were, hits across the head with the rocks. Yeah. I guess they must've hit the thickest part of my skull or something. And, uh, and, and uh, they didn't manage to fully knock, knock me unconscious. And so, or, or, or if they did, it would have been like, um, I guess we would call it like a flash blackout where I sort of came back to my senses. And, um, cause there are, there are some parts of it that are a little bit, a little bit fuzzy. And of course, um, you know, it's, it's 11 years since it happened, but, um, yeah. So truthfully, I don't, I don't know the full, uh, what what happened to those men? What I could say, if we're going to connect a couple of dots here, yes. is I I forgave those men, but the way that I had coped with my trauma was I became a binge eating food addict. Wow. So, and it wasn't really it wasn't as though this was a conscious decision, but I started to eat a lot of junk food in particular because hmm. it gave me some relief from the stress and the trauma that I felt. And so, again, I look back in hindsight with what I understand now, and I would say, in one sense, it was simple. I feel stressed. I eat junk food. I feel better. There's this, like, simple loop in a sense. And so, that was how I was coping with the trauma of what I had been through. Now, this caused me to gain a significant amount of weight. Um, at that time, I gained probably about 120 pounds in a span of about six months. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, that's a lot. Um, and so now I didn't recognize myself in one sense because it was such a rapid weight gain. Yes. And so in my mind, I was still picturing myself to be like this athletic guy that I used to be, but I was this obese guy. And so I started to, to be angry at my own body and hate my own body because of how it had changed. And again, I, I didn't have the understanding I do now. And so for a number of years following that incident, uh, I struggled with my weight because once, once you've been obese, our body makes, makes all the fat cells. And once the fat cells have been made, losing weight is about emptying the fat cells, but it's not about deleting the fat cells. So they always sit there waiting to be refilled. And that's why weight regain happens much faster than, than weight gain. And that's why people can lose the weight only to gain it back really quickly because when we resume our whatever pattern of behavior we have, the body's already prepared to gain all that weight back really, really rapidly. And, you know, it's actually a neat, I wouldn't say neat, make it sound like it's a good thing, but it's a biological mechanism that allows us to survive famines. If our body had to make new fat cells every year, we would not survive famines and food insecurity, but the ability to store fat and create fat cells um, allows us to survive famines as human beings. So, but the product, the byproduct of my biology is that um, I was destined to struggle with my weight for the rest of my life, basically. And now I call it manage my weight. So even though I've lost a significant amount of weight, ultimately I still have to be vigilant and manage my weight because if I turn to, you know, eating recklessly or eating, you know, massive amounts of junk food again, I will regain that weight again because I haven't had, you know, liposuction or some kind of surgery to remove all of that, those fat cells, they're all there waiting to be refilled. So I have to live differently than I used to live previously because I have to continue to manage my weight for the rest of my life. Wow. And you will say that uh, this trauma that you went through and all the things that transpired caused you most of the problems in your life that you had to Mm. deal with. So this is where you find yourself with this weight gain that is so astronomical, like just Mm. like that. And you say in your mind, you still feel like the athlete you used to be, but physically you're not. How how does that happen? I mean, Mm. were you not looking yourself in the mirror? How is this? Because you talk about brain-driven weight loss. You are the best Mm -hmm. person to talk about it because here you are, you are an athlete in your mind, but physically, it's something else. Were you not looking yourself in the mirror? I mean, Jonathan, you really want to break Mm -hmm. this down because it could be the reason why there's so much obesity because people are not dealing with the, the root cause. Yeah. I think what a fabulous question. Um, you know, because you would think this weight regain happening, happening so quickly that I should be like recognizing that it was happening. But what, what gets missed here is that I was operating in survival mode. So Mm. as well as there's an element of denial of the reality of the situation. And so logically it doesn't make sense, but this is happening in a different part of our brain that doesn't have anything to do with logic. 
And so yes. I think one of the things that we need to understand is that we have different parts of our brain. We have a logical part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex. That's where we do calculations and decide, decide like the consequences or risks of our behavior. But then we have our emotional brain, which is much more powerful. And we have our primal brain as well, which is concerned with just keeping us safe and alive. And those other parts of our brain can really overwhelm and completely override the logical part of the brain. And what this points to is something that I call living nowadays, I call it living in the gap. And that is the gap between what we know and what we do. And because I think this mystifies a lot of people and is how can I know what I should do, but instead I do something totally different. So for example, smoking cigarettes, it's well established in the scientific community that smoking cigarettes is extremely bad for your health, will lead likely to lung cancer and other terrible lung conditions. And yet, even with this knowledge, there are still people who smoke cigarettes. Yes. Now, we could say, are they stupid? And I would say, no. We need to look at this from a different perspective. Smoking cigarettes solves a problem. Now, it's not a a great solution to the problem. It's not a great long-term solution. But in the short term, it works really well. How many people, if you know somebody who smokes, I need a smoke. What, what are they actually saying? I need some relief from my present circumstance. Whether it's I need boredom relief, I need stress relief. And so in the short term, smoking a cigarette, it makes you feel good, maybe, temporarily, that nicotine and so on. But it also gives you that break that you're looking for. It gives you something to do. It takes you away from a present situation into another one. And so when we remove the assumption that somebody must be stupid for doing something that's harmful to their health and actually look at it from the perspective of what problem does this behavior solve, if we can understand why that behavior is occurring, then we can actually look at treating that pattern of behavior entirely differently instead of trying to just um, put somebody in like a, could we call it a, like a mental straitjacket and try to force them to quit the behavior. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Whew, it does. It does. It's it's incredible. You have lost a hundred pounds. Mm. Tell us about that journey and how uh, how long <laughs> did it take? I mean, with what you have just yeah. said, I mean, someone can be listening right now or might be listening now, thinking, "So it's possible." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would uh, sometimes I joke and say that. I've lost about 600 pounds and uh, but what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm really referring to is I have lost and regained and lost and regained and lost. Okay. So what does my journey look yes. like? It was an up and down journey. Now the reason why oh. is because I would get to this place. So here, here's what I think a lot of people experience. We get to this place of frustration. I'm so disgusted with how I feel. I'm so sick of being overweight. I'm so tired of this. I just want this weight gone. Mm -hmm. So then we embark on this effort to lose weight using some sort of extreme methodology because we want it to happen as fast as possible. Yes, yes. Now, that's what I did a number of times. And so I actually got pretty good at losing weight, but I was terrible at keeping the weight off. Wow. Because it's two different... it's, It's like we know that, okay... We can, for a short period of time, we can endure discomfort. And losing weight is an uncomfortable process. That's the truth. Hmm. Because we're asking our body, we're like fighting 
our biology in a sense, because our biology, remember we have a famine biology. We want to hold on to fat cells. That's what helps. And we, we want to, and, and if we have food scarcity, whether it's through genuine famine or whether it's through starvation, like trying to starve ourselves through a diet, either way, our biology adapts to that. Our metabolism adapts to when we cut calories, for example, when we eat less food, our biology figures out, well, how do I, how do I get by on less calories? How do I operate on that? We're really wired to hold on to weight. And so I, I share that because I think it's important because a lot of people will get frustrated and think, what is wrong with me? How can I like lose weight and just gain it back? Why? It's because we, we have to teach our brain to operate differently. It isn't enough just to say, follow this meal plan or exercise with this exercise plan. We have to address the psychology of, of what's taking place. And then on top of that, we also need to create human connection. So, because to lose weight and keep it off means we have to be transformed. In other words, we have to become a different person and that might scare some people, but I, I often talk about, because you, you're listening to me talk right now and you're listening to me talk about, you know, traumatic incidents and weight gain and weight loss and so on. And it's very calm and it's not difficult for me to talk about, but it's because I'm a different person. If you would have met me five years ago or 10 years ago, you would have met a different person. Yes. So I share that to say, but I mean, I mean my parents and my friends and my family and my wife, they still recognize me as Jonathan. Like I, they know me, the core of who I am, but I live differently. And I can't go back to living how I used to live if I want to keep maintain my weight loss. So I have to create a new way of living. We can call this a lifestyle. And so we go, well, how do we do this? Now, if we try to put you in that dietary straitjacket, you know, you cut out all these foods and, and restrict yourself until, you know, you, you want to scream and lose the weight as fast as possible. That might work in the short term, but it doesn't work in the long term because it doesn't give your brain time to adapt to a new way of living. The way that our brain works is when we, when we repeat a behavior, it becomes a habit. Now, why our brain does this? Because I think what we want to understand is why does our brain do this? Well, 95 to 98% of our brain function is unconscious. We don't even think about it. How many people listening to this are even thinking about their breathing? Well, they might be now because I just said yeah. it. But prior to now, they weren't <laughs> thinking about it. It was just happening. Yes. How many people think about their heart, their heart beating? It's just happening. How many people wave their arms and don't even think about consciously that they just commanded their arm to wave around? You know? So our brain, most of our brain function is unconscious. So we have a limited amount of conscious, uh, conscious brain power. And so we have to, we have to recognize that if our efforts to lose weight mean that we have to constantly apply conscious brain power, we will eventually fail. So we have to figure out, and this is what the problem I'm trying to solve with, with my coaching and program is how do we turn conscious effort into unconscious habits that just automatically move us towards maintaining our weight loss and living differently. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to do with people. Hmm. Now, what are some of the mistakes that you think uh, people are making, especially those who are trying to lose weight? What are those mistakes that they are making and the same mistakes are stopping them from losing the weight and keeping it off? Mm-hmm. Jonathan? Well, I think it's, it's not addressing what's really going on. So we can, we can say, look, our biology, we can say like losing weight in one sense involves managing your stress, sleeping better, cutting down on screen time, 
you know, eating your vegetables, eating lean protein, not eating too much junk food. Like that's at its core, maybe the behaviors that would be required to lose weight and maintain weight loss. But what that doesn't address is like the human factor. So right now, I mean, the world is in a stressful place. We've come out of a couple of years of the pandemic. Um, there's wars being fought. There's economic insecurity. So, you know, not to mention just the stress of like family and work and, and so on and so forth. So everyone's experiencing a lot of stress. And so if we try to force more stress onto an already stressed person, we cannot maintain that because like weight loss by itself is a type of stress, right? From It's, it's like a biological stress. So we are forcing our body to use its fat stores that it was storing up for famine. Well, that tells our body biologically that we are under duress or we're under stress. And so if we don't account for well, the term is called allostatic load. What that term refers to is like the sum of all the stress we experience. That can be mental stress. That can be physical stress, emotional, spiritual, whatever different stressors we might experience. There's like, a sum total of that. Now, if that amount of stress we experience is beyond or exceeds our capacity to recover from that stress, we now move into this place of distress, bad stress, because we need some stress. Like we, if we had a zero stress experience, we would never learn. We would never grow. We'd never develop because there's no reason to. So we do need some, but when that, when that level of stress goes beyond our capacity to recover, whatever we're doing is not sustainable. And so if our efforts to lose weight involve stressing ourselves even more without addressing how to manage or navigate that stress, our efforts cannot succeed long-term. Talking about long-term, is there a best Mm. diet for long-term weight loss? For someone who wants to get started tomorrow, say, I hear you, you say, this is all brain-driven. And I want to deal with this as early as tomorrow. Where do I start? How do they get started? Jonathan? In terms of, to answer the question, is there a best diet for weight loss? I, um, in my professional opinion, I am what we would call a dietary agnostic. In other words, I don't think there's one best way to eat, but I think there are principles that we want to live by. So I don't see our biology evolving in such a way that eating donuts for breakfast will become a healthy behavior. I don't think that's ever going to happen. (laughs) Shame. I know. Right. (laughs) But right. And so we, we go, okay, so how do we incorporate the principles of healthy living into our lifestyle? And that's, that's what I want to help people do. So the first thing is to, to, um, well, first thing would be to contact me. They can go to freedomnutritioncoach.com if they want to contact me. Um, but really, in order to change a behavior, because what, what I can tell you is most people's behaviors that are causing them to gain weight or maintain being overweight are habitual behaviors, automatic behaviors that they're not consciously thinking about. So in order to create behavior change, we first have to bring our unconscious behaviors into our conscious awareness. That's why I talk about stress management, because stress depletes our conscious awareness. So we need to manage our stress so we can bring our our unconscious, unhelpful behaviors into our conscious awareness. Now, that sounds like a big thing, but it can be really as simple as, um, for example, I'll have my clients take photos of their meals. What they're doing when they do that small action is they're now triggering the prefrontal cortex. They're now going to pay closer attention to what they're eating. 
And so that's really, really important. Um, and mm. then what we want to do is we want to take the healthy behavior. That's that not that, work. I mean, to take pictures. Sure. It's it sure. Takes work. But I mean, I would say it's a very small amount of effort. You pull out your phone because oh, most right. people have a smartphone nowadays. You take a photo <laughs> and you put your phone away. And so we go, because one thing, how do we, how do we introduce the smallest amount of resistance to behavior? Any, any effort to change our behavior um, will require conscious effort. Yes. Now this, this points to something else that's really important. If we don't have a good reason to do this, we're not going to do it. We're not going to stick with it. We have to find what is, I call it the emotionally compelling reason why we want to do this because behavior change is hard. Mm. If it was easy, we wouldn't have an obesity crisis. So let's call out for what it is. Behavior change is hard. So how do we make it easier? Well, one, I think hiring a coach, um, a coach with a lot of experience who can actually understand, and that's that's me, uh, or people like myself. I shouldn't just say only me. I'm not the only person in the world that can do this. Um, but but someone who genuinely understands what it's like, you know, here's what you need to do because it's my it's not just my educated experience. It's my lived experience. So that, that part of it's really important. We just have to understand that there is, is no going back to our old behaviors if we want to create permanent change. It's so, so important to understand that. And so we have to have a reason, a really good reason why we, we want to change. And so you, for me, I'm, I'm now a father. And, Jonathan, we are losing you. You're okay. Maybe, maybe start. Okay, well, I, I would say we'll, 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 we've chatted for quite, quite a good amount of time. Yes, maybe start with people taking um, pictures of their food. I've seen people take pictures of their food in restaurants and mm. around. I always thought it was for selfies, not knowing probably now well, it maybe makes it sense. Is. No, but now remembering the moments, now it makes sense that probably they were just uh, monitoring what they are eating. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> right, right. So. Yeah, we want to teach our brain um, how to be healthy. We want to take a health behavior that we have to consciously practice in the beginning, but if we practice it enough times, it becomes automatic. And so if we can turn a healthy behavior into a habit, we can create a way of living that doesn't feel like it's a lot of effort, but moves us towards being healthy. Hmm. We are out of time. We are out of time. You are you going to have to come back, please. We have to find a way. You've got a book, Freedom Nutrition Coach, a book that talks about crushing cravings. I mean, who doesn't want to crush the cravings? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you care to talk about that? It's free. And this is what people need to know. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. Even though I feel like you should be paying for this one because at least if it costs you something, you'll probably take it seriously. You say how to sleep your way to a lower weight. Jonathan, you have to return. I think that's just, yes. I think you, you, you may have to come back. I think so too. And then we can um, take it from here. <laughs> well, then, that sounds like a great idea. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll allow you to share your final thoughts and let you go, but with the promise that you're coming back as soon as you can. The website is freedomnutritioncoach.com. The link in the description. 
there's an ebook is a free ebook that will show you exactly how your final thoughts uh, we're out of time self-compassion will lead you to permanent change hating yourself never will but self-compassion will final thought Whew. <laughs> and you end it as a final thought ladies and gentlemen jonathan mark linen he's coming back so this is not an end i'll take it as a an adjournment and we will return take it because we really need to take this one step by step and also talk about the coaching um courses classes or whatever coaching that he is offering because if you really want to take this serious and you're serious about being healthy and being at that uh, normal weight you know that is healthy you need to take it a step further and also having the support of those who believe in what you want to do or endeavoring to do will be of great importance Jonathan McLennan check him out on freedomnutritioncoach.com it's all about freedom you want your freedom back freedom to be who you want to be anytime freedom to be in that weight that you've ever desired or maybe you used to have whatever it is whatever freedom means to you freedomnutritioncoach.com check it out mdn talk radio the mic swings to you at mdn talk radio the conversation is upbeat with life enhancing chats moderated by personalities that matter exclusive conversations to keep our radio community interactive is with you now log on from the comfort of your couch or take us along in your palm as you go hear us the undeniable choice